Chapter 14 of Harrington. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Harrington by Maria Edgeworth. Chapter 14. When I arrived at Mr. Montenero's, I saw the window shutters closed, and there was an ominous stillness in the area. No one answered to my knock. I knocked louder, I rang impatiently. No footsteps were heard in the hall. I pulled the bell incessantly. During the space of three minutes that I was forced to wait on the steps, I formed a variety of horrid imaginations. At last I heard approaching sounds. An old woman very deliberately opened the door. "'Lauk, sir, how you do ring! There's not a body to be had but me. All the servants is different ways, gone to their friends.' "'But Mr. and Miss Montenero—' Oh, they was off by times this morning. They be gone. Gone? I suppose my look and accent of despair struck the old woman with some pity, for she added, Look, sir, they be only gone for a few days. I recovered my breath. And can you, my good lady, tell me where they are gone? Somewhere down in Surrey, Lord knows. I forget the names, but to General Somebody's. General B's, perhaps? Aye, aye, that's it. My imagination ran over in an instant all the general's family, the gouty brother and the white-toothed aide-de-camp. How long are they to stay at General B's? Can you tell me, my good lady? Dear heart, I can't tell. Not eyes. How they'll cut and carve their visitings. All I know is, they be to be back here in ten days or a fortnight or so. I put a golden memorandum, with my card, into the old woman's hand and she promised that the very moment Mr. and Miss Montenero should return to town, I should have notice. During this fortnight, my anxiety was increased by hearing from Mrs. Coates, whom I accidentally met at a fruit-shop, that Miss Montenero was taken suddenly ill of a scarlet fever down in the country at General B's, where, as Mrs. Coates added, they could get no advice for her at all, but a country apothecary which was worse than nobody. Mrs. Coates, who was not an ill-natured, though a very ill-bred woman, observing the terrible alarm into which she had thrown me by her intelligence, declared she was quite sorry she had outed with the news so sudden upon me. Mrs. Coates now stood full in the doorway of the fruit-shop, so as to stop me completely from effecting my retreat, and while her footman was stowing into her carriage the loads of fruit which she had purchased, I was compelled to hear her go on in the following style. Now, Mr. Harrington, no offence, but I couldn't have conceived it was so really overhead and ears an affair with you, as by your turning as pale as the tablecloth I see it really is. For there was my son Peter, he admired her, and the alderman was not against it. But then the Jewess connection was always a stumbling-block Peter could not swallow. And as my Lord Mowbray, that the town talked of so much as in love with the Jewess heiress, heiress, says I, very like, but not Jewess, I'll engage. And, said I, from the first, he is no more in love with her than I am. So many of them young men of the town is always following of them heiresses up and down for fashion or fortune's sake, without care and sixpence about them that, I ask your pardon, Mr. Harrington, but I thought you might, in the alderman's phrase, be of the same kidney. But since I see tis a real downright affair of the heart, I shall make it my business to call myself at your house to-morrow in my carriage. No, that would look odd, and you a bachelor and your people out of town. But I'll send my own footman with a message. I promise you now, let him be ever so busy, if I hear any good news. No need to send it if it be bad, for ill news flies apace evermore, all the world over, as Peter says. Tom, 
I say, is the fruit all in, Tom? Oh, Mr. Harrington, don't trouble yourself, you're too polite, but I always get into my coach best myself, without hand or arm, except it be Tom's. A good morning, sir. I shan't forget to-morrow, so live upon hope, lovers fare. Home, Tom. The next day, Mrs. Coates, more punctual to her word than many a more polished person, sent as early as it was possible to set my heart at ease about Miss Montenero's illness and other matters. Mrs. Coates enclosed in her note two letters, which her maid had received that morning and last Tuesday. This was the way, as Mrs. Coates confessed, that the report reached her ears. The waiting-maid's first letter had stated that her lady, though she did not complain, had a cold and sore throat coming down, and this was alarming, with a spotted fever in the neighbourhood. Mrs. Coates's maid had, in repeating the news, turned the sore throat into a spotted fever, or a scarlet fever, she did not rightly know which, but both were said by the apothecary to be generally fatal, where there was any Jewish taint in the blood. The waiting-maid's second epistle, on which Mrs. Coates had written, a sugar-plum for a certain gentleman, contained the good tidings, that the first was all a mistake. There was no spotted fever, the general's own man would take his Bible oath within ten miles round, and Miss Montenero's throat was gone off, and she was come out of her room. But as to spirits and good looks, she had left both in St. James Square, London, where her heart was for certain. For since she come to the country, never was there such a change in any living lady, young or old, quite moped. The general and his aide-de-camp, and everybody, noticing it at dinner even. To be sure if it did not turn out a match, which there was some doubts of, on account of the family's and the old gentleman's particular oaths and objections, as she had an inkling of, there would be two broken hearts. Lord forbid, though a Jewish heart might be harder to break than another's, yet it looked likely. The remainder of the letter Mrs. Coates or her maid had very prudently torn off. I was now relieved from all apprehensions of spotted fever, and though I might reasonably have doubted the accuracy of all the intelligence conveyed by such a correspondent, yet I could not help saving a little faith in some of her observations. My hopes at least rose delightfully, and with my hope, my ardent impatience to see Berenice again. At last the joyful notice of Mr. and Miss Montenero's return to town was brought to me by the old woman. Mr. Montenero admitted me the moment I called. Miss Montenero was not at home, or not visible. I was shown into Mr. Montenero's study. The moment I entered, the moment I saw him, I was struck with some change in his countenance, some difference in his manner of receiving me. In what the difference consisted I could not divine, but it alarmed me. "'Good heavens!' I exclaimed. "'Is Miss Montenero ill?' "'My daughter is perfectly well, my dear sir.' "'Thank heaven! But you, sir?' I, said Mr. Montenero, am also in perfect health. What alarms you? I really don't well know, said I, endeavouring to laugh at myself and my own apprehensions. But I thought I perceived some change in the expression of your countenance toward me, my dear Mr. Montenero. You must know that all my life my quickness of perception of the slightest change in the countenance and manner of those I love has ever been a curse to me, for my restless imagination always set to work to invent causes, and my causes, though ingenious, unluckily seldom happened to be the real causes. Many a vain alarm, many a miserable hour, has this superfluous activity of imagination cost me, so I am determined to cure myself. At the moment I was uttering the determination, I stopped short, for I felt that I could not keep it on this occasion. 
Mr. Montenero sighed, or I thought he sighed, and there was such an unusual degree of gravity and deliberation in the mildness of his manner that I could not believe my alarm was without cause. I took the chair which he placed for me, and we both sat down. But he looked so prepared to listen that I could not articulate. There was a sudden revulsion in my spirits, and all my ideas were in utter confusion. Mr. Montenero, the kindness of whose manner was not changed towards me, I saw pitied my confusion. He began to talk of his excursion into the country, he spoke of General B., and of the whole county of Surrey. The words reached my ears, but conveyed no ideas to my mind, except the general notion that Mr. Montenero was giving me time to recover myself. I was grateful for the kind intention, and somewhat encouraged by the softness of voice and look of pity but still there was something so measured, so guarded, so prepared. At last, when he had exhausted all that he could say about the county of Surrey, and a dead silence threatened me, I took courage, and plunged into the middle of things at once. I cannot remember exactly the words, but what I said was to this effect. Mr. Montenero, you know so much of the human heart, and of my heart, that you must be aware of the cause of my present embarrassment and emotion, you must have seen my passion for your incomparable daughter. I have seen it, I own, I am well aware of it, Mr. Harrington, replied Mr. Montenero, in a mild and friendly tone. But there was something of self-accusation and repentance in the tone, which alarmed me inexpressibly. I hope, my dear good sir, that you do not repent of your kindness, said I, in having permitted me to cultivate your society, in having indulged me in some hours of the most exquisite pleasure I have ever yet enjoyed. He sighed, and I went on with vehement incoherence. I hope you cannot suspect me of a design to abuse your confidence, to win, if it were in my power, your daughter's affections without your knowledge, surreptitiously, clandestinely. She is an heiress, a rich heiress, I know, and my circumstances, believe me, sir, I have never intended to deceive you, but I waited till... There I was wrong. I wish I had abided by my own opinion. I wish I had followed my first impulse. Believe me, sir, it was my first thought, my first wish, to speak to you of all the circumstances. If I delayed, it was from the fear that a precipitate declaration would have been imputed to presumption. As heaven is my judge, I had no other motive. I abhor artifice. I am incapable of the base treachery of taking advantage of any confidence reposed in me. My good sir, said Mr. Montenero, when at last I was forced to pause for breath, why this vehemence of defence? I do not accuse. I do not suspect you of any breach of confidence. Pray, compose yourself. Calmed by this assurance, I recovered some presence of mind, and proceeded, as I thought, in a most tranquil manner, to express my regret, at all events, that I should not have been the first person to have explained to him my unfortunate circumstances. But this, I said, was like the rest of Lord Mowbray's treacherous conduct. I was going on again in a tone of indignation, when Mr. Montenero again begged me to compose myself, and asked, to what unfortunate circumstance I alluded. You do not know, then? You have not been informed? Then I did Lord Mowbray injustice. I explained to Mr. Montenero to what circumstances I had so unintelligibly alluded. I gained courage as I went on, for I saw that the history of my father's vow, of which Mr. Montenero had evidently never heard till this moment, did not shock or offend him, as I had expected that it would. 
with the most philosophic calmness and benevolence he said that he could forgive my father for his prejudices the more readily because he was persuaded that if he had ever become known to my father it would not have been impossible to conquer this prepossession i sighed for i was convinced this was a vain hope there was some confusion in the tenses in mr montenero's sentence too which i did not quite like or comprehend he seemed as if he were speaking of a thing that might have been possible at some time that was now completely past i recollect having a painful perception of this one instant and the next accounting for it satisfactorily by supposing that his foreign idiom was the cause of his confusion of speech after a pause he proceeded fortune he said is not an object to me in the choice of a son-in-law considering the very ample fortune which my daughter will possess i am quite at ease upon that point still though he had cleared away the first two great obstacles i saw there was some greater yet unnamed i thought it was the difference of our religion we were both silent and the difficulty seemed to me at this moment greater and more formidable than it had ever yet appeared while i was considering how i should touch upon the subject mr montenero turned to me and said i hate all mysteries and yet i cannot be perfectly explicit with you mr harrington as far as i possibly can however i will speak with openness with sincerity you may depend upon it i have always spoken and ever shall speak you must have perceived that your company is particularly agreeable to me your manners your conversation your liberal spirit and the predilection you have shown for my society the politeness the humanity you showed my daughter the first evening you met and the partiality for her which a father's eye quickly perceived that you felt altogether one upon my heart my regard for you has been strengthened and confirmed by the temper prudence and generosity i have seen you evince towards a rival i have studied your character and i think i know it as thoroughly as i esteem and value it if i were to choose a son-in-law after my own heart you should be the man spare me your thanks spare me this joy continued he i have now only said what it was just to say just to you and to myself he spoke with difficulty and great emotion as he went on to say that he feared he had acted very imprudently for my happiness in permitting in encouraging me to see so much of his daughter for an obstacle he feared an obstacle that his voice almost failed i am aware of it said i aware of it said he looking up at me suddenly with astonishment he repeated more calmly aware of it let us understand one another my dear sir i understand you perfectly cried i i am well aware of the nature of the obstacle at once i declare that i can make no sacrifice no compromise of my religious principles to my passion you would be unworthy of my esteem if you could said mr montenero i rejoice to hear this declaration unequivocally made this is what i expected from you but continued i eagerly miss montenero could be secure of the free exercise of her own religion you know my principles of toleration you know my habits and though between man and wife a difference of religion may be in most cases a formidable obstacle to happiness yet permit me to hope i cannot permit you to hope interrupted mr montenero you are mistaken as to the nature of the obstacle a difference of religion would be a most formidable objection i grant but we need not enter upon that subject that is not the obstacle to which i allude then of what nature can it be some base slander lord mowbray nothing shall prevent me cried i starting up furiously gently command yourself and listen to reason and truth said mr montenero laying his hand on my arm am i a man do you think to listen to base slander 
or if I had listened to any such, could I speak to you with the esteem and confidence with which I have just spoken? Could I look at you with the tenderness and affection which I feel for you at this instant? Oh, Mr. Montenero, said I, you know how to touch me to the heart, but answer me one, only one question. Has Lord Mowbray anything to do with this, whatever it is? I have not seen or heard from him since I saw you last. Your word is sufficient, said I. Then I suspected him unjustly. Heaven forbid, said Mr. Montenero, that I should raise suspicion in a mind which, till now, I have always seen and thought to be above that meanness. The torture of suspense I must inflict, but inflict not on yourself the still worse torture of suspicion. Ask me no farther questions. I can answer none. Time alone can solve the difficulty. I have now to request that you will never more speak to me on this subject. As soon as my own mind is satisfied, depend upon it, I shall let you know it. In the meantime, I rely upon your prudence and your honour, that you will not declare your attachment to my daughter, that you will take no means, direct or indirect, to draw her into any engagement, or to win her affections. In short, I wish to see you here as a friend of mine, not a suitor of hers. If you are capable of this necessary self-control, continue your visits. But if this effort be beyond your power, I charge you, as you regard her happiness and your own, see her no more. Consider well before you decide. I had confidence in my own strength of mind and honour. I knew that want of resolution was not the defect of my character. Difficult as the conditions were, I submitted to them. I promised that if Mr. Montenero permitted me to continue my visits, I would strictly comply with all he desired. The moment I had given this promise, I was in haste to quit the room, lest Berenice should enter, before I had time to recover from the excessive agitation into which I had been thrown. Mr. Montenero followed me to the antechamber. My daughter is not at home. She is taking an airing in the park. One word more before we part. One word more before we quit this painful subject, said he. Do not, my dear young friend, waste your time, your ingenuity, in vain conjectures. You will not discover that which I cannot impart. Nor would the discovery, if made, diminish the difficulty, or in the least add to your happiness, though it might to your misery. It depends not on your will to remove the obstacle. By no talents, no efforts of yours can it be obviated. One thing, and but one, is in your power, to command your own mind. Command my own mind? Oh, Mr. Montenero, how easy to say, how difficult to command the passions, such a passion. I acknowledge it is difficult, but I hope it is not impossible. We have now an opportunity of judging of the strength of your mind, the firmness of your resolution, and your power over yourself. Of these we must see proofs. Without these you never could be, either with my consent or by her own choice, accepted by my daughter, even if no other obstacle intervened. Adieu. A bright idea, a sudden ray of hope darted into my mind. It might be all intended for a trial of me. There was, perhaps, no real obstacle. But this was only the hope of an instant. It was contradicted by Mr. Montenero's previous positive assertion. I hurried home as fast as possible, shut myself up in my own room, and bolted the door, that I might not be interrupted. I sat down to think. I could not think. I could only feel. The first thing I did was, as it were, to live the whole of the last hour over again. I recollected every word, recalled every look, carefully to impress and record them in my memory. I felt that I was not at that moment capable of judging, but I should have the means, the facts, safe for a calmer hour. I repeated my recollections many times, pausing, and forming vague and often contradictory conjectures. 
then driving them all from my mind, and resolving to think no more on this mysterious subject. But on no other subject could I think. I sat motionless. How long I remained in this situation I have no means of knowing, but it must have been for some hours, for it was evening, as I remember, when I wakened to the sense of its being necessary that I should exert myself and rouse my faculties from this dangerous state of abstraction. Since my father and mother had been in the country, I had usually dined at taverns or clubs, so that the servants had no concern with my hours of meals. My own man was much attached to me, and I should have been tormented with his attentions, but that I had sent him out of the way as soon as I had come home. I then went into the park, walking there as fast and as long as I possibly could. I returned late, quite exhausted, hoped I should sleep, and waken with a calmer mind. But I believe I had overwalked myself, or my mind had been overstrained. I was very feverish this night, and all the horrors of early association returned upon me. Whenever I began to doze, I felt the nervous oppression, the dreadful weight upon my chest. I saw beside my bed the old figure of Simon the Jew, but he spoke to me with the voice and in the words of Mr. Montenero. The dreams of this night were even more terrible than any reality that can be conceived. And even when I was brought awake, I felt that I had not the command of my mind. My early prepositions and antipathies, my mother's presentiments, and prophecies of evil from the connection with the Monteneros, the prejudices which had so long so universally prevailed against the Jews, occurred to me. I knew all this was unreasonable, but still the thoughts obtruded themselves. When the light of morning returned, which I thought never would return, I grew better. Mr. Montenero's impressive advice, and all the kindness of his look and manner, recurred to my mind. The whole of his conduct, the filial affection of Berenice, the gratitude of Jacob, the attachment of friends who had known him for years, all assured me of his sincerity towards myself. And the fancies, I will not call them suspicions, of the night, were dispelled. I was determined not to see either Mr. Montenero or Berenice for a few days. I knew that the best thing I could do would be to take strong bodily exercise, and totally to change the course of my daily occupations. There was an excellent riding-house at this time in London, and I had been formerly in the habit of riding there. I was a favourite with the master, and he was glad to see me again. I found the exercise, and the immediate necessity of suspending all other thoughts to attend to the management of my horse, of sovereign use. I thus disciplined my imagination at the time when I seemed only to be disciplining an Arabian horse. I question whether reading Seneca or Epictetus, or any moral or philosophic writer, living or dead, would have as effectually medicined my mind. While I was at the riding-house, General B. came in with some young officers. The general, who had distinguished me with peculiar kindness, left the young men who were with him, and walked home with me. I refrained from asking any questions about Mr. or Miss Montenero's visit at his house in Surrey, but he led to the subject himself, and spoke of her having been less cheerful than usual, dwelt on his wish that she and her father should settle in England, said there was a young American, a relation of the Manessas, just come over. He hoped there was no intention of returning with him to America. I felt a terrible twinge, like what I had experienced when the general had first mentioned his brother-in-law. Perhaps, said I to myself, it may be as vain. General B. was going to speak further on the subject, but though my curiosity was much raised, I thought I was bound in honour not to obtain intelligence by any secondary means. I therefore requested the general to let us change the subject. 
He tapped my shoulder. You are right, said he. I understand your motives. You are right. I like your principles. On returning from the riding-house, I had the pleasure of hearing that Mr. Montenero had called during my absence, and had particularly inquired from my own man after my health. I forgot to mention that in one of the young officers whom I met at the riding-house, I recognized a schoolfellow, that very little boy who mounted upon the step-ladder on the day of Jacob's election, turned the election in his favor by the anecdote of the silver pencil-case. My little schoolfellow, now a lath of a young man, six feet high, was glad to meet me again, and to talk over our schoolboy days. He invited me to join him and some of his companions, who were going down to the country on a fishing party. They promised themselves great sport in dragging a fish-pond. I compelled myself to join this party for the mere purpose of changing the course of my thoughts. For three days I was hurried from place to place, and not a single thing that I liked to do did I do. I was completely put out of my own way. My ideas were forced into new channels. I heard of nothing but of fishing and fishing-tackle, and of the pleasures there would be in the shooting-season, of shooting-jackets and powder-horns and guns and proof-guns. All this was terribly irksome at the time, and yet I was conscious that it was of service to me, and I endured it with heroic patience. I was heartily glad when I got back to town. When I felt that I was able to bear the sight of Berenice, I went again to Mr. Montenero's. From that hour I maintained my resolution, I strictly adhered to my promise, and I felt that I was rewarded by Mr. Montenero's increasing esteem and affection. My conversation was now addressed chiefly to him, and I remarked that I was always the chief object of his attention. I observed that Berenice was much paler, and not in such good spirits as formerly. She was evidently under great constraint and anxiety, and the expression of her countenance towards me was changed. There was an apprehensiveness, which she in vain endeavoured to calm, her attention to whatever I was saying or doing, even when she appeared to be occupied with other things, was constant. I was convinced that I was continually in her thoughts. I felt that I was not indifferent to her, yet the expression of her countenance was changed. It was not love, or it was love strongly repressed by fear. By fear! Was it of her father's disapprobation? I had been assured by Mr. Montenero, in whom I had perfect confidence, that no power of mine could remove the obstacle. If it existed, then his advice was wise not to waste my thoughts and spirits in vain conjectures. As far as it was in human nature, I took his advice, repressed my curiosity, and turned my thoughts from that too interesting subject. I know not how long I should have maintained my fortitude in this passive state of forbearance. Events soon called me again into active exertion. End of chapter 14